Hi, this is Jim in Tucson. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, my guest is Terry O'Reilly. His CBC radio show, The Age of Persuasion, is a dense, funny history of the world of advertising. Before we get to our conversation, let's hear a sample from his show. It was the late 60s. Richard Nixon was sworn into office. Oliver won the Best Picture Oscar. Trudeau mania was cooling. If you were looking for John and Yoko, why, you'd find them in bed at Montreal's Queen Elizabeth Hotel. It was a time of ceaseless motion, of boundless, often rudderless energy, colliding philosophies of hateful love and endless war. In this turbulent climate, the folks at Time Incorporated had an idea. They decided to hold a contest to create an ad in the public interest. Ad agencies were invited to enter. The stakes were plenty attractive. The winning team would receive $25,000 and a bust of Johannes Gutenberg. The winning entry would run as a full-page ad. Good morning, sunshine. The winner was all text. Two columns of large, bold type under the enormous black headline sandwiched between two thick red lines. The ad was written by Bob Levinson and art directed by Len Sirowitz of Doyle Dane Burnback. Its headline was created by Bob's brother, Larry Levinson. And I'll bet you a nickel that nobody, and I mean nobody, knew what was coming. The headline? Do this or die. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Terry O'Reilly. Uh, he's a legend in the world of radio advertising. I'm probably overplaying that a little bit. And also the host of the CBC program, The Age of Persuasion, which takes a look at the history and methods of marketing and advertising. Uh, Terry, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Well, great to be on your show, Jesse. I'm a really big fan of your show, so I'm, I'm happy to have you. Oh, um, thank you. And tell me about why when... Uh, you finished college, uh, you decided to become uh, an advertiser. That is an interesting question. So it was a little bit of a process in that when I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario, which is five hours north of where I'm sitting right now in Toronto, it's a real, it's real northern Ontario, where not much goes on, it was a small mining town. But in our high school, we had a film and television course from grades 9 to 13. And I took that course, and I fell in love with television mostly. Then I went to uh, college to study radio, television, and film. Didn't know where I wanted to end up in that world, but I knew it would be somewhere in there. Did that. There were no advertising courses at that college. But every Wednesday morning, we would have a lecture series where somebody from the outside, somewhere, somebody from a field, would come in and give us a talk about their careers for one hour. And that was every Wednesday. 
So we had, for example, Norman Jewison come in and talk about film directing, or we would have, you know, one of the announcers on the CBC News, our, our equivalent of Walter Cronkite up here in Canada, come in and talk to us about, you know, announcing the news. But when the ad guys came in, I loved their lives. When they talked about deadlines and creativity and coming up with ideas and the, the pressure and marketing and getting market share, I loved their life. And in that moment, so it wasn't really what I was studying because there was no advertising courses, but those people in those moments when they came in, I saw my future. I'm really impressed at the prospect of somebody who uh, really fell in love with television because of his coursework. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when you heard about this, had you ever thought about people working in advertising? Was it a world that you had given consideration to? Not prior to that. I mean, like like everybody else, Jesse, probably my biggest peek into that window was Darren Stevens on Bewitched, which was hardly, when I got into advertising, you know, it was nothing like Darren Stevens. He was the, the one do-it-all ad man where he was copywriter, art director, jingle writer, every account guy, like the biggest hyphenate in advertising. So I, I really didn't know what their lives were really like, but I loved the notion of what I thought it was. And then when I got into the business, it was pretty much what I thought it was. It was fun and dynamic and incredibly stressful. Uh, you had a, you know, uh, you had to, you got to work with great photographers and great actors, and I loved everything about it. Was it ever icky to you? Did, did the prospect of working in advertising seem icky? Never, 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 never. Because I don't know why that. Like, I understand why you would ask that question, but I really have to say I've never felt that way about the business because I guess it's all how you look at it. To me, my job as a creative guy in advertising is trying to put forward a product in a fresh new way. In other words, trying to get people to relook at something they probably have seen for years, if it isn't a launch, of course, and get them to relook at it with fresh eyes. And all I ever want to do is just try and get that product or service on their shopping list. I don't have any, you know, uh, illusions that I can send them running to a store to buy the product. All I want to do is make the interruption polite and try and at least get us on the shopping list as a consideration. And I think there's 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 honor in that. I don't I don't have any I don't have any ethical issues with it. What what do you think is the what's the value or the significance of that? Why is that honorable? Well, this will this will sound like the easiest answer in the world, but I, <laughs> I do think it's in an economy like ours. I think marketing makes the world go round. It's it's about industry. It's about making sure people understand what choices they have. It is about creating desire, I would say, or I would even say fulfilling desire, not so much creating it in, in many ways. And I think it's, I think in marketing, it just keeps companies busy. It keeps people employed. It keeps the, keeps the, uh, the, the free market moving. It's just, it's just a fundamental cog, a fundamental gear in, in the economy that, that runs North America and the world, but I'm talking North America. So I just think it has a fundamental purpose. As a very successful advertising person, in fact, you're talking to us from uh, Pirate Toronto, a company that you founded. Um, what made you want to go into broadcasting? What What was it that you wanted to explain about advertising? How that came about is kind of interesting. So every year, Jesse, I would I have put on since the the late '90s. 
a writing seminar, an all-day radio writing seminar for ad people. Because radio is the one medium most copywriters fear. They love television most of all. They love print and outdoor, etc., and now the web. But radio terrifies most copywriters. When I got out of college, just to backtrack on that story we were telling earlier, when I got out of college, I I knew I wanted to be a copywriter in a major advertising agency, but none would have me. I sent out 60 resumes and got back promptly about 60 rejection letters. So So I managed to get the job, and the only place that would hire me was a radio station. They hired me to be their copy chief. It wasn't where I wanted to be, but it was copywriting, it was advertising, and I needed a job, so I took it. And wouldn't you know it, I fell in love with radio. So that's one of those wonderful serendipitous moments in one's life where you really get sidetracked and then you find your passion. And that was what happened to me. So then cut to the point where I get hired finally by a big major advertising agency. And I find that all the copywriters I'm working with are terrified of radio. And it is my comfort place. It's where I feel the most comfortable. So years later, when I started Pirate, I thought, you know what, I bet you a lot of writers still feel that way. So I started giving these big all-day creative seminars on how to create great radio. A friend of mine said to me one day, you know, your seminar broken into pieces would make a really interesting radio show. And I said, really? He said, yep. I said, who would run that? And he said, you know what, maybe the CBC. And I said, so you're suggesting that an, uh, a show on advertising would run on the advertising-free CBC. <laughs> like, like it would be uh, like your NPR, right? And he said, I think they would buy it. So, together with Mike Tennant, a friend of mine who's the producer of the show, we put together a little pitch. We went to the CBC and we said, okay, here's here's our idea. A show about advertising, because advertising is so ubiquitous, it's so huge, It's there's ads on condoms now, there's ads on Nassau rockets, there's ads inside golf holes, there's ads inside urinals. It's becoming, it's exploding exponentially every month. We want to do a show explaining how advertising works from the inside. In other words, this isn't an academic talking about advertising. It's not a professor. It's someone in the trenches. I want to explain how decisions are made in boardrooms. I want to, deci- I want to talk about stories of great strategic campaigns that really work because the strategy was so good, let alone the creative. And I want to tell real war stories because I've been in the business 30 years. I've got a lot of war stories. And I want to aim it at the layman, not the marketing pro. I want to aim it, aim it at regular folks. And the CBC said, we'll take it. It was the shortest pitch I've ever, ever been in in my whole life. I said, really? They said, we'll take it. So now we've been, this is our fourth season on the air. And from what the CBC tells us, it's one of their most popular shows. So it was really about talking to people and explaining how it works, why it works, and why, even if they looked at a category of ads they hated, I wanted to explain why that category may in fact be working. So all, I always say, uh, Jesse, it's like our show is like the special features on a DVD. Why do you think it's important for people to understand what's going on behind the scenes? If it is, or, or if it, maybe it's just entertaining. I think it's a little bit of both. There's certainly a, a, a high entertainment factor in our shows. There's no doubt about that. I think everyone would agree to that point. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think the other thing is... I've heard it, I've heard it, your show described as Spielbergian in its high entertainment factor. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, the, I guess the other, the other side of that coin is, is 
and I, and I see it reflected in the emails we get from listeners. One of my favorite types of emails, which I get a lot of, says this. Terry, love your show. Still hate advertising. Love your show. <laughs> or I've always loathed advertising my entire life, and then suddenly I listen. I find myself hooked to your show, and I find advertising a fascinating world. So those are the kind of emails I love, which means somebody who loathes advertising, not just is mildly annoyed by it, but hates it, you know, reluctantly starts listening to our show and actually then starts to appreciate the thinking behind advertising and the thinking behind marketing and really how hard it is to do this well. It's so hard and so difficult to create marketing people actually like and will listen to and will watch. And I think they love, they, they gain a new appreciation for it. And also I think they don't, they're, they stop hating it as much. They start to, re, to sort of see a campaign and look at it with new eyes and become more interested in, in, the, in the subject of marketing as a result. Not just this loathsome thing that interrupts the programs they like, but as a, as a reality of the world, they kind of now start to, to kind of analyze it and look at it in a whole different world. And I think they like that. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Terry O'Reilly, is the host of the CBC show, The Age of Persuasion. We'll have more with Terry in just a minute. Production of the sound of young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. This week, you can help us choose the limited edition T-shirt for our 2009 Maximum Fun Drive. Check out the blog, the forum, or your email inbox if you're on our email list for a link to the remaining 10 designs and vote for your three favorites. Five finalists will be ranked by our elite panel of t-shirt judges, including Al Madrigal and Paul Shear. One design will be our 2009 t-shirt champion and a thank you gift for our maximum fun drive. Cast your vote this week, and starting May 1st, get ready to pledge. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Terry O'Reilly, is the host of the CBC's Age of Persuasion. Let's get back to our conversation. One of the interesting things to me about your show is that it often focuses on uh, not just the kind of uh, techniques and innovations of advertising, but also the responsibilities of the marketer and advertiser. Um, there was a really wonderful episode that you did called Do This or Die that was, uh, that was themed around a, a print advertisement that ran some time ago. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and, and also just sort of the, the responsibilities of the marketer? That ad that had the headline Do This or Die was written by Bob Levinson, one of the great ad writers, one of the great ad men of all time, who was... Bill Burnback's creative director. So I think the best agency there ever was was Doyle Dane Burnback, DDB, based out of New York. That agency changed everything. They were the Beatles of advertising because in 1962 or something, or 50, you know, late 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 50s, early 60s, they brought wit to and humor to advertising that had that just simply did not exist before. They also teamed art directors with writers for the first time in advertising history. So suddenly their ads had copy working beautifully with the headline. Prior to that, as you see on Mad Men, writers ruled and art directors were third-class citizens where the, the writers would come up with the ideas 
and then send their copy with the secretary down to the second floor and slip it under the door of the art director to art director. There was really no symbiotic relationship at work there. Bob Levinson was Bill Birnbach's creative director, and he wrote that ad in the late 60s. And essentially that ad says we as marketers have this incredible duty to behave with uh, with high ethics and morals and um, and not to take advantage of this incredible access to the airwaves we have. That we can get onto network television and we get onto radio and we get onto billboards. That we have so much access to the public that it is within it. We have to respect that. That you you can't fool the consumer because it'll catch up with us. You can't treat them badly because it'll the karma will come back around. That whole ad was to act responsibly as marketers because it can be so easily abused. We created a whole show around that ad because I'm, I mean, myself and Mike Tennant, who we do the show together, are big believers in that. And I think advertising in many ways gets a, gets a bad rap because a lot of people have abused marketing in, in all its uh, venues. Like there's been a lot of, you know, less than honorable ads done or, you know, pro- over-promise and hyperbole at work and, and the disappointment people get when they buy a product they thought was great. In fact, it isn't, etc. So I think advertising has a huge responsibility to be honest and respectable and transparent. And I, we even did a show, Jesse, called The 23 Things I'd Like to Change About Advertising. And it was a whole list of stuff from me, an ad guy, that I hate in advertising. Like I hate the way advertising has infiltrated sports venues. In other words, take a hockey game and all the advertising on the boards inside the rink. I hate. I, I, I regret that that isn't a pristine surface anymore. And um, how we did another show called Breaking the Contract where we maintain there's a contract between advertisers and the general public. And that contract was, we'll underwrite the, the entertaining content if you sit through our ads. And that was a really great deal. But people have abused that. So when you go into a movie theater and you see ads, you're not getting anything in return for that. Or if you're, you know, you got a, a television screen on top of a gas station or a, on top of a gas pump, you're not getting anything in, in return for that. So they've broken the contract. So that's really a huge part of, of our mantra on that show is advertisers have to respect the consumer and respect the contract. I want to talk a little bit about that contract. That was a uh, that was another one of my favorite programs. Um, you know, I'm I'm 27 years old. I grew up in a time when, um, you know, I grew up after the uh, integrated advertisements and uh, show sponsors of the uh, you know 50s and early 60s, um, and so my standard for broadcast advertising is based on what you just described that relationship between uh, content and advertisements that is, you know, th- that I'll watch 23 minutes of content uh, if, uh, if, if you show me six minutes or seven minutes of advertising. Um, in the past 10 years or so, that's really started to change. Um, do you feel like the new ways of integrating content and advertising are to use a word you used earlier, honorable? Well, I think it's a case-by-case basis at the end, probably. But 
there are things like branded entertainment that is a little bit of marketing, a little bit of entertainment brought together into one show. And I think that's okay. I kind of like that. That's a real throwback to the to the early days of broadcasts where, especially radio, where you had in the 40s, the 30s and 40s and in the 50s where you had like the Texaco Hour where you had a, a variety show on radio brought to you by a, a, a major marketer or the Jack Benny show brought to you by the DeSoto dealers of America. I think... I think that was a great time, and I think when you see them integrated that way now, I think that's wonderful. I hope that there'll be more in that direction. Even my company, we try and create radio at branded entertainment shows for, for advertisers that that are, A, top of mind, really entertaining shows, but have some connective tissue to an advertiser. But it's really bringing people really entertaining tidbits. So, for example... For a job work site up here, which would be sort of like Monster.com, it's called Workopolis, we created a show called The Job That Changed My Life, where we interviewed celebrities and really successful people and said, tell us the story of the job that transformed your entire life, where your whole life changed the second you got that job. And that was a really entertaining radio series, and it was just brought to you by Workopolis. Just the connection set it all. And I think that's okay, because I think you're giving the listener something in return for the sponsorship. What about the other kinds of uh, marriages between content and marketing? I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my favorite shows um, uh, on NBC here in the States, I don't know if it runs on TV in Canada, is uh, 30 Rock, created by Tina Fey. There was a there was a lot of controversy um, uh, a year or so ago over some product integrations that they did on the show. Um, product integrations that they uh, gently made fun of as they did them, um, but product integrations into the creative portion of the show nonetheless. Um, six months ago, there was an episode of the show that had a bit that revolved around the McDonald's McFlurry. Tina Fey had to go to, I think it was New York Magazine, and offer a specific denial that they had been paid to do a bit about the McDonald's McFlurry um, because they had done these other previous pieces. In fact, they just picked the McFlurry because it was the funniest thing they could pick. Um, but I know that when I was watching it, I thought I was watching an advertisement, essentially. When the lines are blurred, how, how do you figure out how, how to do? How do you figure out what's what's right? That's a very, very good question. I'm not a huge fan of product placement in movies and television. I, I, I sort of get why advertisers love it. To me, it's a very expensive way with very, very minimal return on it. For example, if there's a can of Coke sitting on a desk in this major scene where a, a husband and a and his wife are having a fight, I just don't know how much, how much branding goes on in that moment, and they probably paid a fortune for that. And then conversely, you have a show like the The Apprentice, and they have a you know they have to create a a, a commercial around a certain product, so an entire episode or two are, are dedicated to it. I uh, I like how Thirty Rock does it as a rule because they shamelessly do it. They say, "Here we are doing this," and then they make fun of it, and the product still gets its, its moment in the sun, and it's very funny and amusing, and there's something very transparent about it that I love. The other times when it's quietly just sitting on the table, there's something there's something about that that I don't like because it isn't being truly honest with what it is. You know what I mean? It's not part of the storyline. It's just quietly hoping you'll notice it. 
So I, I have a problem with that. I don't love that. Do you think that advertising is a net positive in our lives? I say yes. I say yes. I, I, there, you can make it a, a very articulate argument for overconsumerism. For for you know, like one of the things I said in my shows recently is the storage category of you know where you see those things on the side of highways where you can rent spaces to store your goods. That's a booming industry in North America. That is off the charts booming, because people have so many things they don't know where to store them. And that's not good. So that that it clearly has to be advertising has to take its blame for that. But the net positive is, I mean, I, I love my industry. So I, I'll say I love the fact it gives pe- it lets people know what choices are out there. It it tells it gives people information. I think as as I said earlier in our inter- interview, I think marketing makes the free market wheels go round. So. Almost everybody markets something, and that's the thing. I mean, when people throw stones at advertising, I, I immediately say, what, what do you do for a living? Well, I work in a tire store. Oh, and what – so clearly you need to sell tires to make a living. That's right. That involves marketing. Almost, almost everybody, almost sort of truly philanthropic, and even even charities need advertising. But I think it's a necessary thing in our world. It's, it, I don't think it's a necessary evil. I think it's just a necessary element of business. What do you think characterizes the the best? What do you think is really exemplary in advertising and marketing? Do you mean as a campaign? Yeah, sure. Um, let me think about that for a second. If you go back in history, the DDB Volkswagen campaign is the perfect campaign for me because it sold an ugly little car in a time when Detroit was building gigantic cars with tail fins and and uh, you know that you couldn't see one end of the car to the other you got about a, you know a 32 foot automobile and here was Volkswagen selling this ugly little car they called it ugly in the advertising which i thought was even today one of their first ads by the way the headline was lemon <laughs> i couldn't sell that today that's how outrageous that campaign was. In 1961, when they ran the beautiful shot of a Volkswagen, the headline was Lemon. You have to put context on that and how inc- what an incredible achievement that was. I couldn't sell that to an automobile manufacturer today. Nobody would run it. Their advertising was so honest, so funny, so witty, and so rooted in selling you something that really didn't have a single redeeming feature other than it was completely reliable. That's all the advertising was. Is it's even the the day after they landed on the moon when the in in July on July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine. The very next day, DDB ran a full page ad in newspapers across North America, and all it had was a picture of the lunar module that landed on the moon. You know that crazy that crazy thing with the legs on it, and uh, and the headline just said it's ugly, but it gets you there, and then a VW logo. <laughs> I mean, they em- they embraced with such honesty what their product was. That, to me, is the epitome of great advertising. Today, if you look at something, I'm fascinated by the the uh, the Apple campaign, the Mac versus PC campaign, because I love it because it's so funny, so beautifully drawn out. App, the Apple persona versus the 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 Microsoft Bill Gates persona. I love that. I loved. I can't wait to see the next one. They're all wonderful. They're all little moments in time. 
But I also think it's one of the nastiest campaigns out there because it's so it takes such a slam at PCs and Bill Gates that it's all it's it's disguised as a really wonderful campaign, which I think it is and effective. And it won the the award last year, I think, for the most effective campaign in the United States. So it's not just fun; it's working. But it's also one of the nastiest because it hit, it's such a comparative ad campaign, right? But it's just something about it I love. So. I think those two things, I think that's kind of a, a long descendant of the Volkswagen campaign because it's just so funny and so witty and so simple, and I like it. You mentioned falling in love with radio um, in your first job at a radio station. Yeah. Um, and I think it, your show works so well and so specifically as a radio show. Um, what's special to you about working on the radio, both as a programmer and as someone who, who creates advertisements for the radio? You know, it's, I think it's a very, it's a very unique medium because, and this is what I say in my seminars to writers all the time, that you have to kind of sit down in a room all by yourself and think about what makes radio work. To me, it's so intensely personal as a medium. It's it's you're usually alone when you're listening to it as a rule. I mean, it's it's a very solitary uh, endeavor, which I think is its power. Unlike television, which is a sermon from the mount, radio is really a whisper in your ear. It's very one-on-one. -on -one. Even the emails, I'm sure you get this too, Jesse. The emails from your listeners are so personal. Like it's you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's like, hi Terry, I love your show. I, I love the, I love the fact you said this, and then last week you said that, and then I remember a year ago you said this, and by the way, I, I do the same thing. Isn't it funny? Anyway, I love your show. Like I don't think – I think that's a radio-specific email. It's just the, they've, they've created – there's a relationship at work there that, that listeners really appreciate and they reciprocate and they love, and I think that's, that's a real joy of radio. I also think as a, as a copywriter and a director of radio commercials – I've always said radio is the most visual medium of all. And by that I mean with the right writing, with it, with some clever writing and a bag of sound effects, you can be on the moon, you could be at the bottom of the ocean, you could be inside a heart valve, you can be uh, in a foreign country. And the great thing is if you've done it right, if you constructed it right, people are instantly there with you. They instantly imagine the scenario. And here's the greatest thing about radio to me. If I say, imagine, Jesse, the most beautiful woman in the world has just walked through the door and has locked eyes with you. If I say that, the woman you're imagining and the woman I'm imagining are completely different. But they are exactly the most beautiful woman in the world to each of us. I was imagining my wife, to be specific. Well, there you are. What a wonderful, That's a wonderful sentiment. And... Television's not like that. Television's very powerful, but it does all the work for you. You have to you sit there and you kind of you know decide whether you want to accept it or not. Radio it demands you get involved. The listener becomes your art director. And one of the things I do to demonstrate that as for instance at radio seminars, I'll, I'll say this to people. I'll say, "Okay, imagine the following scenario in your mind. Beautiful sunny day, blue sky, not a cloud in the sky." a beautiful green pasture for as far as you can see. In the distance, you see a horse, a rider and a horse slowly galloping towards you, this beautiful sight of this beautiful horse. It gallops completely by you, jumps over a stream, passes this, this old antique barn, and disappears into the horizon. And then I'll say this. Okay, in a show of hands, who saw a white horse, brown horse, black horse, male rider, female rider, 
gray barn, red barn, green barn, and the hands in the audience are just going up and down like crazy. And it's because everybody pictures the best of everything to them. And that, to me, is the power of radio because it's, it makes it transitions a passive listener into an actively involved one. And I think almost no other medium really, really does that. Well, Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. You're very welcome. Love to be on your show, Jesse. Terry O'Reilly is the host of The Age of Persuasion. If you don't happen to live in the great nation of Canada, you can listen to it online at cbc.ca slash persuasion, where they have a full streaming archive. And um, it, it's probably illegal to uh, podcast it because of various license, licensing issues. But I bet if you uh, looked around on the Internet, you could listen to it via podcast. I think some, some entrepreneurial people have figured that out. Terry, thank you so much again. Thanks, Jesse. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by sleeping... Sleeping? Speaking into microphones. <laughs> our theme music written and performed by... <laughs> Shut up, Brian. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show's edited by Nick White. Our intern snickering at me in the background is Brian Fernandez. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, and you can always email me directly. My personal email address is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. I don't always reply to every email that I get. Um, I've caught some flack for that lately. Uh, my apologies. I get a lot of emails, but I apply to many of, reply to many of them and read them all. Um, yeah, and don't forget that our Maximum Fun Drive is coming up May 1st through 15th, so uh, ready those pledging fingers. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.